and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by Pet Plan Equine. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, we are getting so close to the Olympics now, I can practically taste it. When I speak to you on next week's podcast, I will actually be in Tokyo, assuming, of course, that I pass my final COVID tests, get all my paperwork in order. It is such a nerve-wracking time for riders, obviously horses in quarantine now, some of the horses starting to fly this week, and uh, everybody's just on tenterhooks making sure that horses are fit and they do board that plane. And of course, extra uncertainties with all the tests that riders and everyone else flying out is having to take this time as well. Our guest this week is Kian O'Connor, who will be riding on the Irish show jumping team in Tokyo. He talks about how he approaches such a big event. You know, any championship, particularly the Olympic Games, is about being able to deliver on the big day. Is my horse fit? Is he healthy? Have I jumped enough? How's his rideability? What areas do I need to improve on? And then you go and you treat it like another event, but you up your own game as a rider. I'll be chatting to our news team about horse registration for the Olympics, a prosecution around an owner who didn't call the vet, and use of carpet in arena surfaces. Finally, personal trainer Katie Bleakman will give some advice on how amateur riders should prepare themselves for competition. It's the same as your horse. You wouldn't expect him to go well at the weekends if all you did was leave him in the box, chuck him out in the field, go for the occasional hack. And it's the same about you. Think about what's going to benefit you, your goals and your horse, and then train accordingly. More from Katie later. For now, put on your helmet and let's get started. I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse and Hound. And this week, as the excitement builds towards the Tokyo Olympics, I'm thrilled to welcome one of the world's leading riders who has just been selected to represent Ireland at this year's Games. It's Kian O'Connor. Kian, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much, Jen. Yeah, I'm delighted to be on. Uh, as you said, the excitement's building, so we're looking forward. To, we're counting the days down now, really. Oh, my goodness. I can only imagine. Do you still get a shivers of excitement? What are the emotions of hearing you've got that Olympic call up? Ah, listen, it's great. You know, it's 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 so much work by so many people. It's the culmination of so much work, and uh, everybody plays a big role in in at least you know even trying to get selected. And then when you get picked, and and now we're working on the finer details of how we're going to go well there. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a big a big big team behind the scenes who make it all happen. Sure, and uh, doubly exciting is that it's the first time since two thousand and four that Ireland has a qualified an Olympic team. I mean, that must make it extra special for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And with such good riders, Bertram Allen, uh, Shane Sweeten, and Dara Kenny, you know, we've got a we've got a good chance. There's a new format. Um, I suppose it'll be the same for everybody with no drop score, and uh, maybe it'll play into our hand. Let's hope. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, what do you think um, that's going to affect the sport that we see in the Olympics? I suppose we were all very vocal against it because we're a bit traditionalistic and we don't really like change uh, <laughs> yeah. somewhat. But, you know, when you look at it, maybe it'll favour the nations who, who, who don't have an abundance of horses at that level. Um, I suppose the downside of it will be if somebody goes the wrong course or or, or was eliminated or, or, or some had a slip up or whatever, that the whole team is down. And from that end of it, it's difficult. But I suppose it's the same for everybody and, and it's important. Uh, with probably the majority of chef to keeps will will be picking, you know, people who are proven and tested at that level. That there's no real space for rookies when you go to the Olympic Games, especially with three man team. 
Exactly. I mean, does it affect how you approach the competition? Do you, does it make you more cautious or can you sort of go in there, you know, all guns blazing still? I always think when you're preparing for a big championship that you don't want to change too much. Mm-hmm. You know, like at the moment I'd be studying course plans and I'm looking at things today from, from courses over the last number of years that were built uh, by the same course designer, courses that we jumped from him this year, uh, the the Spanish course designer Santiago. And uh, it's, it's the same with many course designers that, that have a signature and the same stuff tends to come up. So we'll be kind of practicing, but it's not like that you'd go go home and start building Olympic sized fences or anything like that, because right. obviously it's very different schooling at home as opposed to the horse's blood being up in the arena. So you're just trying to maybe even get yourself in shape. So I'll be building courses and taking out other horses and practicing on them and just making sure that my eye is in. And also I'll be competing as much as I can right up till I go. So I think it's important that we stay, stay riding, stay competing to keep sharp. Brilliant. I mean, that's really interesting insight there. That's fantastic. Um, and you mentioned Bertram and Dara and Shane Sweetnam. What's the dynamic between you all? What would you say your strengths are as a team? I think respect. I think everyone respects each other. I've worked with Shane Sweetnam for many years now. We were on the team together in uh, in Gothenburg when we won the European Championships. And I think this kind of group that has come through now is is the result of of, I suppose, of the start of that era, which was 2017, when, when Rodrigo Pessoa took over the team management and Michael Blake came in as his second in command. And now Rodrigo focused on his riding, so he's 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 back riding for Brazil and Michael Blake has taken over the helm. So the, the group of people that are there and the I suppose the plan and the programme was put in place by Rodrigo and Michael together and then it was nice that Michael was able to take it over and will be leading us to Tokyo. So there is a respect there of everybody and there is a, a group of people who work well together and who have delivered results. Um, I suppose it's difficult in a way because Nations Cups maybe aren't what they were 15 years ago in that there's so much competition for competitions and there's so much other circuits and bigger prize monies on offer and and everyone's kind of competing against each other every week and then you expect them to ride as a team so um michael got us all together in uh, in in america and we worked well together and also when we came back then we went to Le Bowl and uh, we jumped together as a team there and obviously you know there was other people to be considered and other selections we made we didn't know that we were going until the announcement last week but i suppose you have a fair idea of which are the main horses or which are the people with results at the end of the day the horses who jump clear rounds are the ones that get picked there was no major surprises i think so we were able to work together in 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 le bowl as a unit and as a team and uh, i think that's important is that the team has is not just meeting for the first time at the championship Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic squad. You've had a great track record at recent championships as well. You're going in there with high expectations, I guess. Is there a bit of pressure or are you looking forward to it? Yeah, I think there's something different about championships. You know, it's 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 about it's about the big day, being able to aim for the big day. I'm actually, I, I, I worked the horses this morning and I'm back in my house here. Uh, I'm renting a place in, in Holland for the summer where I decided to come out and I wanted to be close to all the shows and, and be able to work. And just this afternoon, I'm working on the logistics, the plans. You know, when will the horse get shod? Uh, when will the vet check him last time? Even details like when's he going to be clipped before he travels? No stone is left unturned and you're arriving there. You know, uh, obviously, even with the best plans, th- things can still go wrong. But we try to have a strategy in place where myself and the key people within my organization will have a checklist of everything that we want to want to do and go through so that we're on top of every item. 
Wow, it's a logistical nightmare, I can imagine, <laughs> packing and checklists and all I sorts actually, going I on. actually enjoy it. I, I get great oh, relief <laughs> from being organised. Yeah, I like oh, making brilliant. lists and ticking things off, and uh, I'd probably drive everybody else mad within cars. But, <laughs> but for me, there's great, there's great relief in being organised because it allows you then to say, yeah, you know, I've done my best, I've I put my best foot forward. And, you know, any championship, particularly the Olympic Games, is about being able to deliver on the big day. Is my horse fit? Is he healthy? Have I jumped enough? How's his rideability? What areas do I need to improve on? And then you go and you treat it like another event, but you up your own game as a rider and you try to deliver uh, an accurate round. And, and that's what it's all about. You know, when you go to those big days, you don't want to be getting too close to the fence or riding the water too slow. You have to, you know, everyone else is putting the works hoods up to us to, <laughs> to be on top of our game and perform as well. Brilliant. Um, and any thoughts on who could be the medalist this year? Who are the sort of big names and nations we should be looking out for, do you think? Um, there's no real standout horse for me that's kind of been winning everything. You know, the way some years you have a horse who's won five Grand Prix in the trot or, sure. you know, you're a famous horse over the years. You had Shutterfly or uh, Hickstead or whatever. I'm not sure we have a horse like that in mm-hmm. in the sport at the moment. Obviously, you've got, you've got Clooney. He's been going, you know, well over many championships and he produced a beautiful round the other day. His form hasn't been as good this this year, but maybe he's just waiting. Um, you have Explosion, who who didn't do that much for the last period of time, won a good mm-hmm. Grand Prix in Valkensvard. But I just mean there's no combination jumping out as nailed on, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, and of course, you won the bronze medal in London 2012 with Billy Lloyd. What are your favourite memories of that amazing day? Yeah, he was such a special horse, Jen, like a, a little horse, only only just just over 16 hands, but a, a heart of gold. And um, he always tried his best and, and wanted to deliver. You know, we joked at the time that we didn't think, you know, was he really an Olympic horse scope-wise? Oh. <laughs> Somebody asked and, and uh, he was just so game and so brave. And I said, listen, we just treat it as another show. and We, do, we won't tell him it's the Olympics. Oh, bless. <laughs> Brilliant. He came out and did it with a with a plumb, really, didn't he? He was a fantastic horse for you. Yeah, that was special and special to do it in London. I mean, London has been lucky for me. I love jumping in, in England and uh, we jumped in Olympia over many years, had plenty of successes there with great horses. So to do it in London for us is, was fantastic. It's as close to home as it probably been Olympics for us. Yeah. Um, and this year you've been selected with a super Irish sport horse called Kilkenny, who I think has lots of admirers. He's such a lovely horse, isn't he? But um, he's only a nine-year-old and you're a relatively new partnership. How did you sort of give him the nod for the Olympics? Yeah, so Kilkenny, I, I, I found him last autumn. I was on the Sunshine Tour in Vahir and I was watching a class and I was just looking at the start list and he, he bef- bef- before he came in, I just kind of saw that he was an Irish horse and, and uh, so I started to watch him and um, I really liked him. I liked the ease in which he did the job. He was only eight years old then and uh, I spoke to the rider after the class and uh, he was actually owned by a lady I know who lives in Ireland called Carol G. So oh, yeah. I approached her and um, at first she didn't want to sell the horse. She wanted to keep him. She had, she had a lot of offers and I told her that I was very serious and that I would really like to to buy the horse with the aim of going to the very top. So uh, thankfully she let me try him and, and, and the rest is history, really. Oh, my goodness. And what would you say are his best attributes then? What makes him so good? He's got a great mind. And, and I suppose, you know, we talk about horses, you know, having a good mind and whatever. And I suppose maybe obviously they do have it naturally, but it's also, uh, I suppose, a sign of the way he was looked after and brought up. Mm-hmm. You know, the people that had him the whole way up from from the girl, Sophie Richards, who rode him as a novice 
uh, to Duarte Zebra, who produced him to international level, uh, and the people who broke him and cared for me. He's such such a I know in my experience the good horses they have something different. You know, you walk into the stable with them and you can see it in their eye. They know they're good. They're a little bit cocky. Mm-hmm. They have a kind of presence about them which this guy has in abundance. You know, when you ride him, he's got lovely energy and lovely blood, but he's in no way hot. He doesn't need a lot of leg to jump the oxers. He's very, very careful. And, uh, you know, he's really progressed. He's moved up the the level quite quickly. Um, in Florida, he was second and fifth in two Grand Prix qualifiers, and then he was third in a five-star Grand Prix. So um, his results have been great, and, and, yeah, really looking forward to it now. Oh, very exciting. But you mentioned also PSG final. What would um, What's happened with him? Is he's been out with injury and uh, hasn't got back in time. Is that right? Yeah, no, PSG has been, been, been jumping well of late. I've only done a couple of shows with him this year. The latest, he was clear in the three-star Grand Prix in Kanaka. But yeah, uh, I suppose a little bit of a rush against time. And then when, when Kilkenny came to four, uh, we didn't have to push PSG. We could allow him a little bit more time. So hopefully we'll be aiming him at the European Championships and... Uh, that gives us an extra bit, of, an extra couple of weeks to do some more competitions as well to build up his fitness. Fantastic! And did you mention that we'll see Kilkenny before he goes to Tokyo? What are the plans between now and then? Yeah, I'd like to jump him in uh, in Valkensvar. I'm thinking maybe not the Grand Prix. I right. don't want to maybe do a major test beforehand, but maybe the big class will still be big enough, and uh, and probably PSG in the Grand Prix there as well. Fantastic! And then do they all go into um, quarantine? What's the what's the process for getting to Tokyo? Yeah, everyone has to do a week's quarantine and um, you can work the horses there every day. I also have the European Championships for junior riders, which is the same week on in Villamura. And uh, I'm looking forward to that because I help Tom and Max Watchman and they're really, really great lads. They're fun to help, uh, super talented riders and they're going very, very well. So I'm looking forward to helping them. Hopefully they'll, they'll, the Irish teams had good success in the juniors this year under James Kiernan. They, they won the Junior Nations Cups both at Virden and Hagen. So uh, it'd be great to be a part of a bit of success with them in Villamura prior to heading off to Tokyo. Oh my goodness, very exciting times, isn't it? <laughs> um, and now tell us about this fantastic new base you've built at Carlswood. Um, you and I have chatted many times about coming to visit at some point. Uh, hopefully COVID will allow us at some point soon, but it looks an amazing setup. Tell us a bit about the facilities and how it all runs. Sure. Yeah. Well, myself and Ruth, we 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 bought the property um, about nine years ago now, and it's our it's our home, it's our house. We've got two young kids, uh, Cara and Ben, and uh, we wanted to create something at home where, I suppose, a centre of excellence where we could ride, train, produce horses and riders. And uh, it's been a long time, I suppose, in the pipeline. It's nice to see it finally come together and be used. Um, the goal will be that we can we can develop horses there uh, before we bring them to Europe or to America to the marketplace, and that we can we can bring on students who have maybe Olympic ambition. Uh, okay. We've we've built facilities there for that in mind. Really, that we have we have everything indoor, outdoor, outdoor sand, grass, paddocks, gallops, uh, spa therapy, uh, hydro hydrotherapy, um, water treadmills, and so on. Oh so my we, goodness! We have a full a full, I suppose, facility where people can really do everything they wish before they build up to big competitions. So it's 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 my goal to try and uh, work with students who maybe want to even do a semester in college in Dublin. There's great universities in Ireland. They could do a, a stint at Carlswood and then go back to their own their own, their own place or their own their own school after that. So we're just we just really got open last year and then COVID struck and it kind of set everything back a bit. So in one way it's been hard because there has been no movement so there's no business but in another way it's allowed us time to get it finished and get it off the ground and 
hopefully after the Olympics, then we can focus on, on, on pushing that forward. Amazing. And how many horses do you have there? Have you sort of got youngsters coming through and all sorts stable there? Yeah, we're always buying young horses and, and I have a lot of horses I own in shares and they'll be based with other people. We're trying to buy the best horses we can find, really. So we the plan is to have 20 horses there in work between myself and Ross Mulholland, who rides for me, and then have another 20 boxes for students where they right. can come and train either for six months or a year or longer or even just stints for a couple of weeks. And so the people could come and go and use the student's barn. Um, with that in mind but you know it's 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 good and it's it's uh it's difficult in a way Jen, because you're trying to keep all the balls in the air between yeah. riding <laughs> coaching running the business and you know we're we're very fortunate as well we, we rely heavily on on support and, and owners and like i'm i feel very lucky particularly with kilkenny this year there was a lot of interest in him in america and uh susan magner stepped up and she was keen uh to i suppose help me with my olympic quest and uh, she secured the horse for me to be able to keep him, which which obviously I'm very appreciative of, and and, and the importance of owners really can't be That's stressed it. enough. Oh my goodness, that is fantastic! Yeah, without them, there's there's no sport really, is there? Absolutely. So it's a huge thanks to them. Brilliant. Um, and finally, we always enjoy a trip down memory lane on these podcasts. Um, take me back to the early days. How did it all begin for you, and where did you get the show jumping bug from? I suppose sometimes I think you know you don't want to reminisce before you're before you're too old. But sometimes I think back <laughs> and I and I and I think I think honestly I've been very lucky, and I think I've been lucky in in the people and the horses that I've met. My 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 dad was hunting, uh, and that probably was the first idea of horses that I had. And then I went to local riding school and got going and uh, did hunter trials and small small jumping. And I lived just outside Nace in County Kildare, and there was a horse show in Kill where I um, used to have a show every week on a Wednesday. And I used to go down and watch. And that's where I met Jerry Mullins, first of all. He was, oh, wow. he was um, yeah, he was riding in the army then and he was coaching as well. And uh, I, I kind of liked his style and just watched him for a few times. And then I bumped into him and introduced myself. And uh, he was very nice and very friendly. And he went on to be my coach, my mentor. And today is still a very, a very good friend and support. And... Um, it was through 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 Jerry that I suppose got to the next stage of junior Europeans, young rider Europeans, mm-hmm. uh, with the help of my godfather Tony O'Reilly, who supplied horses at that time. Yeah, then when I finished school, uh, when I was eighteen, uh, I set up my own yard. I rented a yard in Maynooth, and then just started trading in horses, teaching lessons, and and getting going really like anybody else. But you know, I had a great a great leg up in that I had both the coaching from Jerry and I had the horsepower uh, to be able to go to some good shows. And and I suppose I started doing Nations Cups in in when I was nineteen, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and then I was on the winning team in Hickstead when I was twenty. So I suppose there were different times in a way. And, um, yeah, a lot of it comes down to the people that, that, that helped me and the people that we met and, and all those friendships along the way. Yes, I'm sure. And the horses too. Tell me about some of the horses that have sort of shaped your career over the years. Yeah, I had some great horses. I mean, uh, that first horse at the major level was Water for Crystal. He, he obviously he was a leading horse in the world in 2002. Mm-hmm. He jumped uh, double clears in, in Hickstead, uh, Washington, uh, New York, Dublin. Uh, wow. All over the world, really. He was extraordinary. After that, I had I had a great horse, an Irish horse called Echo Beach. He was clear in the Grand Prix of Aachen. Uh, I had a horse called Ran Corrado that won the was he was second in the World Cup and he won the world the he won the Grand Prix in Olympia the same the same weekend. Oh yeah. Uh, as well as the Grand Prix in Lyon and Basel and Chantilly, he was he was an amazing horse. And then subsequently after that, I suppose the the people would have have great affinity with Good Luck. 
he was an extraordinary horse. He was second in the five-star Grand Prix in Rotterdam, and he won the five-star Grand Prix in Sopot. And he was individual bronze and team gold at the European Championships in Gothenburg in 2017. So, you know, I really feel that I've come across all those animals, and, and they're all different. You know, they're all, some were hot, some, some weren't. I had another horse called K-Club Lady, who was double clear and part of the winning Nations Cup team in 2010 in Aachen. And uh, she was a big, big, strong mare that needed plenty of leg. And then Blue Lloyd was a small, hot horse. Yeah. Uh, good luck was it was uh, like a tiger. You know, he was aggressive in front of the jumps. He was a fantastic jumper. So there was all different, different horses, really, that, that required different training. And uh, from each of them, you learn you learn really about how to how to develop your own skill in handling them, you know. That's interesting. I was going to say, do you have a type? But judging by that, you're you're sort of uh, accepting anything and seem to get on with all shapes and sizes. It's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Well, obviously, the type, you know, you want horses, first and foremost, that are careful and willing to do the job. They need to have plenty of scope to jump the big classes. And yeah. then the more and more you do this job, you realize that rideability and natural balance and all those things, if you can get them as well, um, I suppose I, I find I'm having to buy the horses younger now, where before you could buy them at eight and be ready to go when they're nine, a, a little bit like with Kilkenny, which I think is a bit lucky, where now generally I'm having to buy them at six-year-old because you can't find them then, they're already found. I can imagine, yeah, it's yeah. A, it's breakneck world, isn't it? Trying to, <laughs> everyone's trying to get the same same good horse, isn't it? Exactly. Um, and just looking back at your own superb career, can you pick out some of the moments that make you most proud? I got a great kick out of winning the Puissance in Dublin in 2002. Oh, wow, really? That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah it was uh, it was an amazing week in the RDS. Um, I remember, actually, uh, Tim Stockdale. He was a great character, as you know, and, and, yeah. and a, a real good showman. He was first to go with Winston Bridget and uh, Johan Philippars, the brother of Ludo and the uncle of, of, of Nicola and Olivier. He was second in, and I think I was third on Casper and the place was packed in the RDS like 20,000 people oh wow and Casper was a strange horse he wasn't a very big horse but 16-1 and he was real character like if you tried to jump the wall at home like at 1 meter 45 1 meter 50 he was cold at it he wasn't even that confident oh no was, yeah there was something about the RDS when he went in there and everybody clapped he had this kind of routine oh. where you walked in the gate and he kind of just stopped himself and stared into the stand like you'd say it was it was it was just strange i must try and track down the footage and see can i send it to you we had to go in the in the in the puissance at that stage to qualify for the grand prix so we were in the second last round i said he's jumping it so easy we might as well keep going and in, in the last round in the fifth round the other two guys just tipped off the top brick and casper jumped 225 like it was <gasps> one 125 Oh so it was just a, a standing ovation and it was a special memory to do it in front of the home crowd. Absolutely. Other days that stand out, that double clear on K-Club Lady was, was special in Aachen. It was always a goal to win the Nations Cup there. Really appreciative home crowd in Aachen who who um, who who love who love horses and love tra- tradition. I really got a great kick out of winning the Grand Prix in Olympia. I, I love jumping there. Uh, and I suppose the bronze medal of, of London would really be up there because, you know, the Olympic Games has a bit framed my career a little bit and to get back there eight years later after Athens and I suppose I felt great pride and yeah I suppose redemption and a sense of relief from my family and and there was a great sense of occasion uh, for everybody involved and then after that to go on to Gothenburg and win again at a championship to win an individual bronze with good luck and team gold I think that was something special about being on the team that there was a the people on the team, we all, Dennis Lynch, myself and uh, and Shane Sweetenham were the only three riders um, in the second round. 
that final day and that all our scores had to count and that we all jumped clear. I think that was that was unique and, and also a very special memory. What a feeling. Yeah, I can only imagine. <laughs> um, and lastly, any goals you still hope to achieve? Obviously, looking to Tokyo, but beyond as well. What are your sort of aims and ambitions still in the bag? Yeah, I mean, I, I would really like to go well in Tokyo. I'd love to be part of a team that brings home a medal. I think that would be great. Uh, that hasn't happened yet for Ireland. So to do that in Olympic Games would be special. Um, there are major targets, obviously, like Aachen Grand Prix would be a lovely one, um, World Championships and that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'll keep going while I have good horses and I've got great support and, and a good team around me. I'll keep going a couple of years yet. <laughs> good, I'm glad. <laughs> Kian, it's been really lovely to chat with you and we wish you all the very best in Tokyo. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. Take care. So I'm joined today by all three members of our Horse and Hound News team. First of all, it's hello to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? Yeah, all good, thank you. Getting very excited about the Olympics coming up. Um, I'm quite into football as well, so I've been watching the, the Euros. But yeah, it's all about the Olympics now. Very exciting. Oh, I have to admit, I did watch like 10 minutes of football for the first time ever <laughs> on Sunday night. I did watch the penalty shootout, but is that what it's called? <laughs> yes. Oh God, almost the worst bit to watch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was quite tense. I did quite enjoy it, I have to say, but only really if it's penalty shootouts, because the rest of the time I can't really understand what's happening, but maybe I shouldn't admit that. <laughs> they're fine as a neutral. When, they're, when, you're, when you don't care who wins, they're really exciting, but when it's your team, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> well, we all need to get our nerves in order ready for the olympics so that is okay and at least we won't have any penalty shootouts there no i feel like a penalty shootout is kind of the equivalent to a jump off or something it's when it, everything comes down to the last few fences or kicks but i am also joined today by our senior news writer lucy elder how are you lucy i'm very well thank you pippa i've been at bowlsworth all week which has been it's been a brilliant brilliant show busy show but but yeah some great jumping up there yeah, Lucy has been reporting at the Dodson and Horrell Bullsworth International Horse Show to give it its full name last weekend. Lucy, what happened up there? Who were the big winners? Oh, some brilliant, brilliant sport up there. I can't tell you how nice it was as well to be to be watching show jumping in, in real life again. And Bullsworth, if you've not been, it's such a special arena. It's in the most beautiful setting in Cheshire. Um, and it's like an amphitheatre and it's got a moat around the arena. And there's all these people enjoying, you know, picnics and, and whatever and watching watching the action but the big winners for me uh, this week so first of all I'd say obviously the Grand Prix which was won by David Simpson and Foudre F they were the only combination um, to finish on a zero score so really exciting jump off quite an interesting jump off actually because the time was so influential in the first round and it forced quite a few people to make mistakes they took they took the top 12 through but not everyone was on a zero start score which makes the jump off quite different really but he was you know very the absolute worthy winner the only one on a zero score and really exciting there um we saw a couple of our tokyo bound riders jumping there on one of their final starts before they head off to japan holly smith had her wonderful frizzily there who has won I'm going to say three international classes in the last two weeks. He had two huge wins at Royal Windsor and another great win there. And he was just so unlucky to tip the penultimate upright in the jump off um, in the Grand Prix. But my goodness, that is an exciting horse. We also saw Ben Mayer there with the most beautiful seven-year-old who 
I mean, remember the name, Point Break. That horse, my goodness me, that was certainly one of the highlights of Bolsworth, watching him jump. And actually, the seven-year-olds was one of my favourite classes across the week because we saw... Um, a lovely mare, Fourfields Dark Maxim, who evented, and she actually went to the Young Horse Eventing Championships as a four and a six-year-old, and there she was winning as a seven-year-old in um, in a really quality field uh, in show jumping. So that was a nice one to see. And I also really like the look of a nice seven-year-old called E Banking as well, who um, his connections told me that he'd been slightly overlooked by quite a few people. He'd been for sale for a while, and um, and I mean, just look at what he's doing now. So so that was great. And then just finally, I also one of my favourite stories from across the week was um, Z7 Caratina, who won a big three-star class with Georgia Tame. That mare had a 12-kilogram tumour removed from one of her ovaries last year, which they had no idea she was carrying around until she went off to have some embryos taken. Um, and she's made the most wonderful recovery and is back absolutely on top form, has had some cracking placings and then a big, a big win at Bolsworth. So, no, really good week of sport. Oh, great, Lizzie. It's exciting to hear all about that. And um, we have a full report in the magazine, which is out at the end of this week alongside this podcast. And also you were providing extensive coverage on our website, so you can catch up on a lot of those stories and many more there. Finally, we are joined today by our news writer, Becky Murray. How are you, Becky? I'm well, thank you. Um, just another quiet week at home, actually, but I've just been um, hacking out my girl, Chloe. She's not typically a confident hacker, we'll say, so we've been building this up and trying to get her thinking more forward. Um, so that's been a nice change for us both. And what have you been up to, Pippa? Well, Becky, I have mostly been taking my temperature and taking lateral flow tests, which is uh, what you have to do if you're going to Tokyo. You're recommended for the full, well, you have to for the 14 days before you go, take your temperature every day. And you are then recommended to take lateral flow tests every other day, building up to the compulsory PCR tests in the final few days. But uh, yeah, I had a bit of a catastrophe this morning because the, uh, the battery had gone on my thermometer. But luckily, my husband is also going to Tokyo and he has his own thermometer because that's how we roll it. In our household um so and his is like one of those little temperature guns so i was like oh you're gonna have to come and use the temperature gun on me today so he uh, he came down to my study and, uh, and and told me my temperature so yeah that is literally the excitement in our in our household at the moment is that we take our temperatures and record them on a little spreadsheet um, i've got i've got a horse one you can borrow but you, you might not want to <laughs> i think i know where that thermometer's been eleanor and i think i'm gonna say no <laughs> no i jumped straight onto amazon obviously other supplies are available but i did jump straight onto Amazon Prime and order batteries and they're going to be here before the end of the day so hopefully I'll be back on the temperature bandwagon with my own thermometer tomorrow so yes that's uh, that's all the excitement a lot of packing and getting ready for heading off this Sunday so yeah it's soon and Becky we are going to come to you first to talk about the serious news today and this is a story about the Olympics obviously and um, it's sort of a sad story I think because it's about horses which won't be able to go to the Olympics because of issues with their registration what's the crux of the problem here mm, well this is an issue that seems to have caught a few people out now um basically to compete at the olympics an fei rule requires horses to have been registered under the same nationality as their owner by the 15th of january this year if they missed this deadline or if there was for some reason an error with the registration that wasn't spotted until after this deadline then these horses are not eligible to compete at the olympics Okay, and there are three pairs affected who you've been writing about, all from different nationalities and spanning a couple of sports. Who are those riders and horses? 
The Israeli show jumper Daniel Blumen has been affected for the mayor Gemma W. In this case, it was found Gemma W. was registered under the United States rather than Israel. The Dutch dressage rider Dina van Leer has also been affected with the stallion Hermes, who was incorrectly registered on the database as German instead of Dutch. And the other rider is a dressage rider Tatiana Milo Sardova and the gelding Florento Fortuna. Now, Tatiana is Russian-born and switched to Italy in 2018. However, the horse was still registered as Russian, which wasn't picked up until after this 15th of January deadline. And I think what struck me reading this story, Becky, is that no matter what the circumstances of the horse being registered in a different nationality, whether it's a case of not changing when the ownership changes or when a rider changes nationality or if it's a clerical error, whatever it is, it's a really hard line from the FBI on this rule and there are no exceptions. Is that the impression that you have too? That's right. The FBI has been very strict on this and said they did issue a number of reminders ahead of this deadline as well. The FBI have said the nationality rule is based on fairness and transparency and is not simply a formality. And like you said, there really are no exceptions to this. Mm, well, it is so sad to hear that that sort of paperwork error can, can leave a rider on the sidelines and their nation unable to have maybe field one of their best combinations. But there we go. Those are the rules. Thank you, Becky, for talking us through that one. Eleanor, coming to you now with quite a different story, you've been following the outcome of a prosecution. What are the basics of this case? Well, this was a, a new forest pony uh, in Bournemouth who, it was a really, really sad case. He, he had to be put down because his sarcoids were so bad. Um, the RSPCA was involved in, the, in this prosecution. The inspector said, you know, large areas of skin, loads of different sarcoids. Uh, the vets said they were up to 14 centimetres big, significant. They'd gone into the local tissue. A lot of them were rubbing on each other or on the le horse's legs as it walked. And, and this ho poor horse was I mean the pictures they sent through which we obviously couldn't use the worst ones either in the magazine or on our website because they were just horrific you can hear oozing and pendulous and then you see them and oh just awful and um what this owner had been doing is she'd, she'd mixed up a cream herself and that's what she'd been using to treat them and um this is something and you see it a lot on social media people saying here's a picture of my horse's, horse's sarcoid or just my horse has got these sarcoids and, and what should i do to treat them and, and everyone will chime in saying everything from toothpaste to turmeric um and and obviously it's it's just really don't do that <laughs> uh, is is the long and short of it and this ended up then being a court case where she was then prosecuted for sort of failing to call the vet. Is that right? Yeah, so she was found guilty of, of one count of uh, causing unnecessary suffering to this pony. And it's just a, a very extreme, but a very good reminder of why, you know, that people shouldn't be treating these sarcoids themselves. Get the vet. Mm, and you did speak to some vets about the treatment of sarcoids. What were the messages that, that came out of that aside from don't use homemade remedies? <laughs> yeah, well, we I spoke to our horse and hound vet, Karen Coombe, who, who said, you know, a good few key points. They're not saying vets don't say we can always cure them. But if, the, if you get the vet when the sarcoid is still small, they've got a much, much better chance of, of, you know, being able to deal with them. And it's a more minor and probably a cheaper procedure than when they get bad. Um, also, they're like the tips of the eye. So what you see on the outside, you know, there may be a lot more going on 
under the skin. Uh, she says it, it may not be a sarcoid, it might be a melanoma, it might be a hernia. Um, and we also spoke to the British Equine Veterinary Association President Lucy Grieve, who said, you know, these are skin cancer, treat them like that. If your doctor said, yeah, let's put some toothpaste or, or tie off your skin cancer with a hair, what would you think about that? Um, and, and she said, you know, a lot of the time the treatment can cause the home treatment that is can cause the, the tissue to be dehydrated temporarily and it might look like it's getting smaller but then a lot of the time they come back far more aggressive than they were in the first place um, and that and that can make the tumor develop its own blood supply and and just make it far more hideous than it would have been mm, okay and finally what what were the sort of sanctions in this case for the lady who was prosecuted she was fined £120 and ordered to pay £200 costs. Uh, the, it's understood that the reason she wasn't banned was because of her previous good character. And since that incident had happened, she had looked after other horses and, and showed she could do that. Mm, OK, thanks, Eleanor. A, a sad and serious case there. Mm. Lucy, coming to you, you have been looking at a story about arena surfaces and carpet. What's this one all about? So this one, we kind of knew this was coming. But the Environment Agency has been sort of slightly steadily cracking down on materials used in equestrian services. And this move is part of that. Essentially, it sets out a raft of strict criteria about the way and how and what has to be done to carpet fibre in order for it to be used in equestrian surfaces safely. Um, and when I say safely, I mean in terms of the people riding on it, using it, and also the surrounding environment. And I think I think people are becoming a lot more aware actually about about that and about what we're putting putting on the ground and our responsibility to to the wider environment as well. So it's been quite an interesting one to look into. And you did speak to some representatives from arena surface companies. What was sort of their take on this new legislation? Yes, I did. And first of all, I should probably say as well that I, I clarified with DEFRA because um, I wanted to check whether these new regulations were going to apply to um, existing arenas or if it was just for new surfaces and top-ups of existing surfaces. And that is the case. It's, so if your arena's already put down, you know, this isn't to do with you. This is for people that are having their arena topped up or are looking at putting in a new arena. I spoke to Carpet Gallop um, and they said that they've been working with Carpet Recycling UK and uh, the Environment Agency on this. And, you know, they're pleased, they're welcoming that this has happened. They've been quite involved in it as well. And I also spoke to um, Equine Health Centre, whose brands include Equivia, Equestrian Surface. And again, it's something that they've, they've really welcomed as well. Okay, good. Well, it's good to hear that arena surfaces are welcoming that and not seeing it as sort of a hassle or unnecessary paperwork that they're they're being forward looking at about this and really embracing this this good legislation. Thank you, Lucy. And thank you, Becky and Eleanor for joining us today too. The Horse and Hound podcast is currently supported by Pet Plan Equine. Known for their specialist equine knowledge, the team at Pet Plan Equine aim to offer their customers quality cover that you can rely on. Visit www.petplanequine.co.uk today to find out more about the horse and rider insurance that Pet Plan Equine provides. So now we're going over to a new expert for the podcast and we are delighted to welcome Katie Bleakman, an online fitness coach and personal trainer who specialises in equestrian athletes. 
Katie has evented to a high level, winning Team Silver at the Eventing Pony Europeans. And now riders all over the world can use her online coaching programme, Event Rider Fitness. Over to you, Katie. Today's topic, we are going to be talking about fitness for weekend competitors with a full-time job. So obviously there's a lot of you out there that work full-time, you're doing nine to five through the week and then at your weekends you are taking your horses out competing or training, maybe playing polo matches, going eventing, jumping, whatever it is. And obviously your fitness is then going to be an absolute crucial element of your results at the weekend. So I often get asked by, um, I suppose, more amateur riders, how many times a week should I be training and what sorts of fitness should you be doing so that you are fit for the weekends and to be able to go out and compete at your best and kind of give your horse your absolute best as well. So of course, like this is relevant and specific to everyone and I get asked this a lot, but my advice would be you should be training somewhere between three to five times a week. But obviously you need to um, think about what level you're competing at and what discipline you compete in. What are your goals for both your riding and your fitness? Obviously the higher the level that you're competing at, the higher your fitness should be. Obviously if you're gonna go around badminton, you're gonna have to be a lot fitter than you would need to be and go and jump say a British novice for instance. But equally, if you wanna be out running 5Ks at the weekends or you know going out and doing triathlons, then you're gonna to have to have a higher level of fitness. So it's relative to you and your goals. You wanna make sure as well that what you are doing in terms of your exercise and your training, you're doing for the right reasons. So obviously, of course, you wanna be exercising to better your competing and to be able to ride better. But ultimately, and this should be like your kind of big end goal, it's about moving more and exercising so that you can live a healthier lifestyle, having more energy day to day, having longevity with your health and living the life you want. Um, in terms of energy as well, like you're not just gonna need your energy for your training and your fitness. Like if you think about how busy your day-to-day -day life is or how busy a weekend is or a competition day is, it's full on both physically and mentally. Equally, if you're mucking out in the week at say 6 a.m. in the morning, then running off to jump on the laptop at 8 a.m., working all day till five, then going back out to either go for a run or go and ride, energy needs to be high. And this is where your fitness and nutrition comes in. The biggest thing to consider as well would be your why and obviously everyone has a reason to exercise whether that's badminton or being able to be fit enough to run alongside your kid say at pony club camp on the lead rein you need to find your why and then connect with it make a plan and then have a structure and once you know that why it's going to be so much easier to have a clear goal to work towards and then program your training as such Obviously, it's knowing what to do comes next. So often another question I get asked is, should I be doing cardio or should I be doing strength training? And there's no right or wrong answer, but ideally you should be doing both. Again, it depends on what your goals are, what your discipline is. Say if you're show jumping, obviously there's gonna be an aerobic demand as well as the strength and the physiological demands. So you wanna make sure that you're hitting both areas. And when I say three to five sessions a week, I'd probably suggest that you structure like three to four of those more focused towards strength but then at the end you include like a quick finisher something like a six ten minute hit element that's gonna kind of give you um a good burst at the end get your heart rate up get your lungs working and challenge your cardio system that's a great way as well if you're a bit time poor to kind of hit all those areas at the end of your session and get maximum like bang for your buck and get all of your elements in you want to make sure that obviously what you are doing is effective for you and your training sessions target like all your areas Another big consideration for riders, and this is something that comes up quite a lot, is um, will strength training make you gain muscle and will it make you heavy for riding? This is more specific to training females, but it's an, an important consideration for all and is a question I get asked a lot. 
So if you're concerned that you're gonna get bulky when you start picking up weights, then you do not need to be. If you're scared of being bulky, um, you need to be doing some serious tra training. And the chances are that realistically, you're not gonna be training 10 strength sessions a week. You're not gonna be eating like three to 4,000 calories a day. And you're only gonna look like a bodybuilder or a power lifter if you train like them. So you need to remember that strength training is progressive and you will look defined and toned. Strength training helps you to kind of shape your physique as such, as opposed to pack on a load of muscle. If you think about Paula Radcliffe, long distance runner, versus Dina Asher-Smith, a 100 meter sprinter, they have very, very different body shapes as the demands of their sports are different. And you can see the one who trains faster and includes more strength work, the sprinter, actually has a much more muscular and defined physique. And that's what you need to remember. And for most of us who train like, you know, three to five times a week, we're training more for fun than anything and for functional fitness to improve our health. So it's not gonna be, in, be a consideration and it's definitely not something you should be worried about. Um, you obviously want to be aware that when you're competing, say you're one horse or maybe you've got two horses and you don't ride full time, it is going to be hard to keep yourself feeling fit enough and keep yourself like physically and mentally stimulated for the weekends and ready to go out and compete. But equally, you want to make sure that you are riding fit because obviously the weekends are for you. And now, you know, I think we all know that entry fees are jolly expensive, whether you do show jumping or dressage or whatever your sport is. And I remember that when I was grooming a lot and um, equally I had one horse to compete, I had a very strong horse. I'd come back absolutely knackered from a show at the end of the day and then I'd have literally zero energy zero like get up and go about me and then the next day you try and go to an event you try and ride a big heavy horse that's tanking you cross country and i just didn't have the physical strength to be able to do it if i had the physical strength that i now have like three years ago and i was training like i do it wouldn't have even been a bother for me so it is really important to consider that when you are you know competing for fun but equally you want to be competitive um a common question I get asked a lot is, do I actually need to be training myself if I'm riding say five, six times a week? So a lot of you are very busy and time is obviously gonna be a factor in fitting in some fitness and training for yourself. However, if you're just riding and that is all you are doing, you are not going to be fit enough come the weekend when then you are say driving two hours in the lorry to take yourself to your show or your training day, whatever it is. You're then on your feet all day, like think at a competition, I'd say you would easily do somewhere between 10 to 20,000 steps, which is gonna be a much higher energy expenditure than normal. Then you get on and you ride and you expect yourself to go and say you're eventing, go and do you know half an hour schooling on the flat with your five minutes of your dressage test. Then again, like a 15, 20 minute warm up for your show jumping and probably uh, somewhere between 90 to two minute round. And then cross country is gonna be anywhere from like three to five minutes. You're constantly challenging your body from an aerobic demand and an anaerobic demand. So you're always working between these two thresholds. And if you are just riding at home, you are not gonna be challenging these systems enough. Equally, if you're just sat on the horse, you are not training yourself. Like, yes, okay, you need to, specific adaptation to impose demand is something that we talk about in fitness. And you need to be doing things that are specific to your sport, i.e. you must be riding to be able to go out and compete. However, if you just sit on your horse all week and you don't ever do anything extra to say work on your lower body strength or improve your core strength, you're gonna find at some point that things start to break down. Obviously, when you're riding your horse, you have to consider that you're not just moving yourself, you're moving your horse. 
So then, you know, getting on and if you can feel that maybe you're not straight or maybe he's stronger on one rein, you're not going to fix that by you just riding through it. You're going to have to take some time, get off of him and start looking at yourself from the ground. The whole getting on a horse and adding in a moving element adds a completely different side consideration to your fitness again so it's something that should be considered and obviously like for some of you saying three to five training sessions a week might sound like a lot when you're then trying to ride five to six times a week as well but even if you just fit it in say two or three 20 to 30 minute sessions a week where you do a bit of core strength focus a bit on lower body and then a bit of cardio strength that's going to massively influence and improve your riding and it's the same as your horse, like you wouldn't expect him to go well at the weekends if all you did was leave him in the box, chuck him out in the field, go for the occasional hack. And it's the same about you. Um, you've got to remember as well that doing something is better than nothing. So think about the time that you have. Think about what's going to benefit you, your goals and your horse, and then train accordingly. So I hope that advice was useful for you. Good luck at your next weekend competition. And if you want any more info on any of the topics that I've discussed today, then please add yourself into my Facebook group. If you search KKB Fit, there's loads more information on all of the topics we've discussed. And you can add yourself into the group to join all of my other riders who are working to better their fitness to help their riding. Thank you, Katie. Katie will be back with us in a fortnight's time because next week we are taking a break from our regular podcast format and we will be devoting our whole episode to an Olympic preview special. So do make sure you listen in to that to hear what horse and hounds experts predict will happen at the Games. Thank you for joining us on today's horse and hound podcast currently supported by Pet Plan Equine. If you're enjoying listening to the podcast, please do rate and review it in your podcast app, which will help others to find us. See you next week. The Horse and Ham podcast is a Media Cage production.